Well, let me uh, invite you to open your Bibles momentarily to Acts chapter 18. And you're probably wondering, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, how are we getting there? I thought we're going through the book of Acts. Well, Paul is in Corinth. And while he's in Corinth, he's going to write these two letters to the church at Thessalonica. And I thought it would be helpful to give us a, an idea of what the Apostle Paul is doing while he's in Corinth. He's not only planting a church, he's not only preaching the gospel, building up believers, but he's also shepherding the other churches that he has planted and, and is very concerned about. So in Acts chapter 18, while Paul is in Corinth, we read in verse 5 that when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. So Silas and Timothy joined up with the Apostle Paul in Corinth in verse 5. So just to kind of give you a, a bit of an overflow of what we've been uh, doing and an overview is that Paul is on his second missionary journey from Troas. He went to Philippi, then he visited Thessalonica, then to Berea. And then in Berea, he's kind of being run out of town in all these places. And in Berea, he comes down, sails or walks down to Athens and there the ministry is not well received because of all the philosophical issues that are going on there and just the sin. So then he goes to Corinth, which is kind of sin city. This is uh, what we looked at uh, last week, just all the issues going on in the city of Corinth, the immorality, the paganism, the idolatry, and all that's going on there. And he, he wrote, when he later on from Ephesus, he'll write a letter to Corinth and he'll say to the church that when I first came to you, I came in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. So he's probably worn out, probably, you know, just from all of his previous ministry. So when he arrived in Corinth, he's, he's weak, he's fearful, and there's much trembling there. And the Lord through various means will encourage the Apostle. We went over this last week. He encouraged him by meeting Aquila and Priscilla, fellow Jews who were tent makers. They had fellowship. They encouraged him. He was also encouraged when Silas and Timothy finally show up from Macedonia and they bring financial support. That's an encouragement to him. And he's also encouraged when God gives him a vision in the middle of the night where he tells him, I'm with you. Don't be fearful. Continue to speak out and preach the gospel. No one will harm you. I have many people in this city. So he ends up staying there for a year and a half in Corinth. So during that time, he is in contact with these other churches. Now apparently, the best we can kind of fit it together, when Paul leaves Berea, he leaves by himself. And Timothy and Silas are left behind. They eventually, probably, will come down and join with Paul in Athens for a very short period of time. And Paul, out of his concern for those other cities, will send them back up. So Timothy is sent to Thessalonica. And Silas may very well have been sent 
up to Philippi. We're not so sure about where Silas ends up. But they are weighing on his heart heavily. He leaves Athens. He goes to Corinth by himself. He's heard no news, no updates. Because remember when he left Thessalonica, basically he was run out of town. He went and he preached to the synagogue there. Only a few Jews believed in Thessalonica. But a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. So the church in Thessalonica was dominantly Gentile, not Jewish. Okay, but he has to be, he's run out of town. They come and they basically arrest Jason. They get a pledge from Jason and, and Paul has to leave immediately. His heart is with them. He wants to know how they're doing. Uh, he will write in Thessalon- his first letter to the Thessalonians that he's, his heart towards them was like a mother and like a father. He was their spiritual parent. He loved them. So he's very concerned about how these churches are doing. He wanted to go back to Thessalonica on several occasions, but in 1 Thessalonians, he says, Satan hindered us, so we weren't able to go back. So his heart is there. He wants to know. So he has sent Timothy back up to the city of Thessalonica to see how the church is doing, to continue to disciple them, to build them up in the faith. But he's anxious to hear a word about how they're doing. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, Silas and Timothy now return from Macedonia to give their reports on how the church is doing there. So while Paul is in Corinth, he will write 1 Thessalonians back up to the church at Thessalonica. They'll take that church up there. Whoever carries the letter there will probably spend some weeks there continuing the ministry, getting their response from the content of 1 Thessalonians. And then they'll come back down to Corinth and give Paul an update. And then a few months later, he writes 2 Thessalonians from Corinth as well. So all this is taking place while Paul is in Corinth as we've been studying here in Acts chapter 18. So with that in view, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. And I thought what we would do is just kind of do a real quick walk through these two letters and just point out a couple of the major themes that we see in there, just to learn more about what Paul had taught them when he was there, and also just to kind of see what what, uh, was going on in this particular church, the church of Thessalonica. If you turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, there are several things that I think are emphasized within this book. And the first one is basically that uh, Paul is thanking God for their election. And this is something we see that's very quite interesting because Paul is there in Thessalonica for only a short period of time. In Acts 17, it says he's there for three Sabbaths. Well, that's not very long. That's three weeks. Now, he was probably there a little longer, maybe a couple of months at most. But he's already bringing this theology into this, uh, into this church. If you look at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, and if you look, uh, for example, at uh, verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. 
knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So he's writing this letter back to them and he's thanking God for their faith, their love, their hope in verse 2 and 3. And he's also acknowledging to them that they are brothers, they are beloved, and they are elect of God. They are chosen by God. God chose them. And so the first thing he begins to emphasize in his letter is just a thanksgiving to God for their being God's chosen ones. Now this word for choice in verse 4, His choice of you, is one of the several Greek words that's used for God's unconditional election. This is the very same word that Jesus told Ananias when He saved Paul on the road to Damascus. And He said about Paul, He said, Go for He is a chosen instrument of Mine. Now God chose Saul when there is nothing in Saul that would make you think that God would want him. I mean, Saul was not looking for Christ. He was not seeking to please Christ. He hated Christ. He was persecuting Christians. So it was an expression that God had chosen him. And certainly there was not any condition of goodness in Paul that made God want to choose him. But this same word is used in Acts 9.15 in that way. It's also used in Romans 9.11. When God speaks of God's choice of Jacob over Esau before they were even born or done anything good or bad. God chose Jacob for salvation. And that's the same word that we have here in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. And it's also the same word in Romans 11, verse 5 and 7 where God chooses the remnant within Israel to be the saved people of God. So that there is an Israel, a spiritual Israel within the physical nation of Israel that become the true elect, the true chosen people of God. And what's so interesting about this is that since uh, the Apostle Paul uses this word that throughout the Old Testament was clearly often used for Israel, But now it's being applied to a dominantly Gentile church. And what that indicates is Paul's conviction that the church consisting of both Jewish and Gentile Christians now constitute the renewed Israel of God in the new covenant. Now they are the chosen ones because of God's grace and mercy. Now what's interesting in this is that Paul can refer to them and tell them that they are the the chosen of God and he doesn't have to defend it. He doesn't have to explain it. He doesn't have to deal with all the objections that normally come up whenever you bring up the idea of unconditional election. There's all kinds of objections. But he just mentions it in passing. And what's the significance of that? He had already taught them that. He had already heard it. He had already answered their objections. He had already dealt with the problems already when he was there for such a short period of time. He had already brought in and taught them the doctrine of election and they understood it so he could just refer to it in passing without having to dwell on it at all because it's something that they already embraced, they understood because they had already been taught it. And again, he was only there for three Sabbaths Probably a little longer, but not very long. And yet he emphasizes that theology early on. 
Now look over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a second letter he writes to them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And look at verse 13. Same thing. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Very similar to what the other verse. Beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. The ESV says chosen as first fruits. That's probably not the best translation. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the, in the truth. Now notice in this verse, it says that God has chosen you for salvation from the beginning. From the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation. And in the Greek, that little word for introduces the purpose of the election or the choosing. God chose you for the purpose of saving you. It's not that God chose you because He saw that you were saved. That would be more the Arminian view. That God looks down through history and He sees, well, they put their faith in me. They got saved. So now I choose them. That's not what this verse is saying. God chose them from the beginning for salvation in order to save them. So that their salvation is the result of their election, not the cause of their election. And this is a, a very important observation to make in the text. And Paul again is emphasizing that this was from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world, similar to Ephesians 1.4, that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Same idea. And it's through the means... Our salvation is worked out through the means of sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. But this is an election unto salvation. And Luke had already emphasized this back in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, when he said that as many as were destined to eternal life believed. See, it's our election that causes our faith, not the other way around. So Paul is thanking God that God chose them and saved them and he's giving praise and glory to God. He praises God for their faith, their love, and their hope. Now why would you thank God for somebody's faith if that faith came from their own free will choice? Why would you thank God for their faith? wouldn't make sense. But if their faith came from God then it makes sense. You thank God for their faith because God is ultimately the source of their faith. And we see that emphasized. So the first thing that Paul really does in both letters, he emphasizes his thanksgiving for the grace of God poured out upon them that made the Word of God come in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction so that they came to faith in Christ. He's praising and thanking God for their election and for the grace that God gave to them. Now again, I think what's so interesting about this is this happened early on. It didn't, Paul was not there all of that long before he got run out of town. And yet, this is one of the things he taught them early on. Now people today say, well, you shouldn't teach on the doctrine of election because it's controversial. It causes division, and it's not fit for baby Christians. 
But apparently Paul didn't get the memo. Because that's exactly what he's doing. That's one of the first things he emphasizes to them, which puts it on the, you know, as a doctrine that should be taught to everybody at whatever level of maturity they are. This is an encouraging doctrine. And it, and you can see the spiritual vitality that flows from that because now that, that should cause me to thank God and praise God and worship God for my faith that He chose me because I never would have chosen Him. And it just teaches us how dependent we are and how marvelous is the grace of God. So that's one thing that we see in these two letters. That is, Paul's writing these letters from Corinth. That's on his heart and mind. The second major topic is just a whole variety of exhortations on sanctification. If you turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We find just a bunch of these. In verse 1, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And I always uh, find this kind of humorous because Paul is saying, you know, I want to exhort you to walk in a manner to please God. And you know, you're doing that. But just do more. It's kind of like saying, you know, you're doing a wonderful job. Just do more. Do more of it. And that's kind of his heart. He's always pressing them to excel all the more. We see that again all the way down in verse 10 when he talks about the love of the brethren. And he says, you're doing that well. No one, verse 9, no one needs to write you about this at all. You're practicing it, verse 10, to all the brethren. But we urge you, brethren, excel still more. Just do more of it. You love the brethren. You're a great example. Just do more of it. Just keep it up. Do more. So he was never satisfied. We also see in in chapter 4 here, verses 3 through 8, A big section on abstaining from sexual immorality. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. Thessalonica, like many of the cities back then, were dominated by idolatry, uh, temple prostitution. It was a part of their lifestyle, part of their religion. It was all over the place. And it was not to come into the church. They were to fight against that. They were to know how to keep their own vessel, either referring to their wife or their own body, so that they don't engage in those sins. And so he makes that an issue to them. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, in verse 14, through the end of the chapter, he talks about there being unruly people. He says in verse 14 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another for all the people. And then he exhorts them to rejoice, pray, give thanks, don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances back when that, that gift was very prevalent. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. So just a lot of exhortation on, on matters of sanctification that were very important to the Apostle. 
Second Thessalonians, similar thing. Look at chapter 2, verse 15 of Second Thessalonians. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So he's exhorting them to stand firm and hold to the traditions, not hand-me-down traditions that you heard other people say that we said, but that you directly heard from me, verse 15, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So hold to the traditions that you got first hand from me. And part of the reason why I had to exhort them is that up in verse 2 of the same chapter, there were messages and letters that were apparently claiming to come from Paul that were bringing around and, and advancing some bad theology. And so Paul has to correct that. Don't believe what you hear about me or what other people say. I said, you get it from me firsthand. It's either me saying it or me writing it. And at the end of Second Thessalonians, he says, just so you know which letters come from me, I'm going to close this letter by writing it with my own hand. And that's the distinguishing mark of my letter. So now you know which ones really do come from me. But it's interesting that he's exhorting them to hold to the traditions, but they must be first-hand from Paul, not second-hand. In other words, if you didn't hear me say it or write it, don't trust it. And I think this exposes the folly and the error of a large part of the theology of the Roman Catholic Church that's based upon second-hand traditions or the traditions from the apostles that are hand-me-down. And Paul, in effect, is saying, don't trust those kinds of things. Don't trust them. If you didn't get it from me firsthand, don't trust it. And yet the Roman Catholic Church has built like a, a, a house of cards based upon all these so-called apostolic traditions that they have no support for in Scripture. There's no support that it ever came from Paul. And you would think they would that this kind of a verse would give them pause, but sadly throughout church history it is not. In chapter 3, verse 1, he exhorts them to pray for the ministry of the Word. And these are things we can apply to us as well, right? To pray that the gospel would advance, that it would continue to go forth in power. And then back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 again, he, this whole issue of the lazy people among them that are idle. And if you look, for example, uh, let me get you actually to 2 Thessalonians 3. We're jumping around quite a bit. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 10. If anyone will not work, then he is not to eat either. Now remember, part of the problem of Paul is that the Jews had gone to the marketplace and they had stirred up a mob of people just hanging around. Just idle people. And there is that tendency for people to come into the church and take advantage of the hospitality and the generosity of Christians. And Paul is saying, look, you go work. You eat your own bread. And don't associate with the people that are trying to just bum off the church is basically what he's saying. I think that has some principles about how we implement welfare even within our society. 
There's a lot of things here that I think uh, we can glean from that. But finally, in 1 Thessalonians 5, and under this topic of sanctification, turn back to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 24. Paul emphasizes in several places that sanctification is ultimately a work of God. Now, we're to be responsible. We're to pursue the means of grace, absolutely. But, but ultimately, these great benedictions show us that, boy, we are dependent upon the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you and He will bring it to pass. So what's He praying in here? He's praying that the God of peace would sanctify you completely, entirely. And that signifies that the entire work of sanctification is ultimately dependent upon the work of God in our lives. And so he prays, may God sanctify you entirely. Your spirit, your soul, your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And faithful as He who calls you, He also will bring it to pass. He'll bring about your sanctification. He's promised that He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So he's just reminding them that they need the grace of God. They need to be in fellowship with God uh, for this sanctification to go forward. So a lot of issues, just practical issues. He's heard reports from Timothy about what they're wrestling with. And so he's writing back, dealing with them because he has a pastor's heart for his people. He's trying to minister, give them wise and godly counsel. And then the the third major topic that's in these letters is really one of the dominant ones, and that's just the emphasis on the coming of the Lord. Now in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, some were saying that uh, the day of the Lord has already come. And Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 said, no, it will not come until the apostasy first comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's... So he's, he's dealing a lot with their misunderstandings about prophecy, the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. So this is some of the background. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, Paul is addressing an issue concerning the coming of Christ that many of them were confused about. And again, this tells us that this is one of the things he taught them early on. That the second coming of Jesus Christ was fit for baby Christians as well. Now I can remember when the Lord saved me when I was a sophomore in college next to reading my Bible. The first book I bought was uh, Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. So I was very much involved in, in, in a lot of the interest in prophecy and second coming. And Paul taught them about the second coming. This is again one of the themes that's very prevalent in First and Second Thessalonians. So the first thing in First Thessalonians chapter four is that he had taught them about the resurrection, the coming resurrection, something about the rapture, and but they were concerned about all of their law, their their loved ones who were believers who had fallen asleep. They had died. What's going to happen to them? 
Will they be a part of the resurrection or not? They had that question. They were confused about it. And so in verse 13, Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That is, they're dead. They've died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. They were grieving. Well, they're gonna, they're, they're not gonna be in the resurrection if they've died. Verse 14. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, Christ will come with heaven, uh, from heaven with the saints who are with Him. Their souls are with Him in heaven already. And He will come with them. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Their bodies are still here on earth. Their soul is with the Lord. Verse 16, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now in verse 17, the word to be caught up, in the Latin translation, uh, uses a word from which we get the English word rapture from. So this is, the caught up is the idea of the rapture that's taking place here in verse 17. But notice who is raised first. The dead in Christ. So Christ comes with their souls and He will resurrect their dead bodies first and then we will be transformed as we are changed in the moment of time. And so that's the proper order. But that answers that question. And in verse 18, he said, therefore comfort one another with these words. So that, that, le- that lifted a heavy load off their, their shoulders about what's going to happen to our beloved believers and family members who are in Christ who have already died, will they miss out on the rapture? Will they miss out on the resurrection? Whatever it is. So he clarifies that for them. And he tells them not to grieve. Now, what's interesting at this point is, well, when does this occur? And within the church, you have lots of different uh, beliefs about when the timing of the rapture occurs. You have pre-trib, those who believe it's going to occur, Seven years before the second coming, pre-tribulation rapture. Others are mid-trib in the middle. Others are three-quarter trib called the pre-wrath rapture people. And then the post-trib. And it's my firm conviction that the rapture is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. I'm sorry for those that really are hoping to escape that. But it's my conviction. And I used to be pre-trib and there's a lot of godly people that hold that view, but I'm um, uh, I'm convinced that that's not the right view. That it's post-trib. That it's in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And let me give you a number of reasons why I think that's the case. Number one, this whole context in First Thessalonians four, this rapture passage, has nothing to do with a future tribulation period. 
It's not in the context. You don't find it anywhere in there. Paul is not identifying when this occurs. He's just saying it will occur and the dead in Christ will rise first. But there's nothing in this context that would indicate that it's going to happen before a coming final tribulation period. There's nothing there. Secondly, if you look at verse 17, when it says that uh, those who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This word for meet is used oftentimes in secular Greek to refer, and you can find this in uh, some of the Greek lexicons like Moulton Milligan, like the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. These are authoritative Greek lex, uh, uh, lexicons and dictionaries that have studied this particular word in secular usage. And they say it has become kind of a technical term for the customary official welcome of a newly arrived dignitary into a city. For example, this is a word that's used in Acts 28 verse 15 when the brethren, Paul is on his way to Rome and the brethren in certain cities hear that Paul is coming and they go out of the city and they meet Paul and then they bring him back into the city. This is a word that's used for an official welcome of a dignitary where you go out of the city and greet him and meet him and then you bring him back into the city. Uh, this is a, the, the word that's used of the bridegroom. When he comes and, and the bride and, and all of her attendants go out to meet him and then they bring him back into the room. This is a similar word that's also used in John 12 verse 13 on Palm Sunday when Jesus is riding the little donkey into Jerusalem. And all the people came out of the city to greet Him. And then they went back with Him into the city. This is that word. So the idea of a pre-trib rapture doesn't make sense with this word. For we go up and we meet Him in the air, and then we go back up into heaven. No, that's not the idea. He's the dignitary coming down to earth. We go out and meet Him And then we bring Him back down to the earth. We join Him when He comes back down to the earth. This is not a pre-trib rapture. That would be the second coming. Would be the event that best fits with the meaning of this particular word, meet. So you can look it up and evaluate it yourselves. But to me, that particular word is, uh, is very instructive for the timing of this rapture. It's not pre-trib where we meet Him in the air and then we go back up to heaven. No, no. We go out and meet the dignitary and then we bring Him. We usher Him. We come with Him. We're a part of His entourage and coming back down to the earth. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll show you another reason why I think this is the case. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In verse... Um, For he has mentioned that the believers at Thessalonica have gone through persecutions and afflictions. And then he says that uh, in verse 6, that after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So the church is going through trials and afflictions. So he's going to point them ahead to the coming of Christ as a time when they will get relief 
from their afflictions and their trials. And look at what he says in verse uh, 6 again. And after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Is that a pre-trib rapture or the second coming when He deals out retribution? It's not the pre-trib rapture. He comes down in the clouds, gets the church, goes back up to heaven. This is not a pre-trib rapture in view. This is clearly the second coming. He comes down and judges those who afflicted the believers. But notice what he says in verse 7. Their relief will come clearly at the second coming. Now, if Paul held and taught in a pre-tribulational rapture, then he's very confusing because he should say that your relief will come when Christ comes and He raptures you up and you go back up to that. That's when your relief will come from whatever tribulation you're in, but that's not what he points them to. He says your relief will come from your trials, your tribulation, your problems, your afflictions will come when Christ comes to judge your enemies. That's when your relief occurs. That would only fit with a, with a second coming rapture. That relief comes at the second coming when Christ comes to judge. Not seven years before when it supposedly comes in the air and then goes back up to heaven. Another reason is look at chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him. Okay, our gathering together with Him would be the rapture. And Paul is saying, okay, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering to Him, so this gathering, this rapture, is connected with a coming of the Lord Jesus. What coming is that? Well, that word coming is also used again in verse 8 when Christ will come and slay the lawless one with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. Same word is found in verse 1. So what is the coming when we will be gathered with Him? The same coming when He comes to judge and punish the man of lawlessness. Post-trib. Second coming rapture. It just seems to fit. So in my humble opinion, I think that uh, the, the coming of the Lord... There is no pre-tribulational coming. Whatever tribulation is ahead of us, I think the church will go through, but by the grace of God, He will preserve us through it and we will arrive safely in His presence forever and ever. One final point on the second coming. Regardless of which view you hold to this morning, and I, I know that within our church, people hold different views. But it's a glorious event and however we we understand the timing of it setting the timing aside just just revel in the glory of the event that Christ is coming and look if you will at second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14 second Thessalonians 2:14 
Paul writes, well, starting in verse 13, He has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our Gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. That when Christ comes back, we will gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible future we have. Now we have a little bit of glory here because of what the Spirit of God has done within our hearts. I mean, we're, we're a temple of the living God. We're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We're the, the church of Christ. We're His lambs, His sheep. I mean, so we have glory because of what God has done for us. But when Christ comes back, we get the mother load. See, now we have the first fruits of the Spirit. But then we will have the full harvest. Then we will gain the glory of the Lord in full when He comes in verse 14. And that is a thought that we should never lose sight of. See, Paul could say, for me to live as Christ, to die is what? Gain. Why is it gain? Because we gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are glorified at that point in time. Whether we have died before He comes or whether we're alive when He comes, we will gain the glory when He comes back. This is when our relief comes. This is when the end of our trials and troubles come. This is when our sanctification is complete. This is when all of our labors are over. This is when our bodies are resurrected. This is when there's no more sorrow or pain or tears. This is when there's no more curse and no more death. And we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. And we gain His glory. And we share in the glory that He has as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And this is something I think that we should be mindful of. That Jesus Christ loved us so much that He came down from heaven and died on the cross. He put Himself on the executioner's block. He took our sins. He suffered on the cross the full wrath of God to pay the full penalty for all of our sins so that we might one day gain the fullness of His glory in heaven. And on that day, on that day when He comes back, the Scriptures say, then we shall see His face. We will be transformed into His likeness. We will gain His glory. Peter encourages us in 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let that be the longing of your heart. Let that be what you anticipate and look forward to. Fix your hope completely on that grace that we will receive when Christ comes back. And John says we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. It's purifying for us when we look forward to gaining the glory 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we are very glory-less people here. I mean, we have very little. I mean, our bodies are prone to sickness and illness and decay. But that day of future glory still awaits us. Paul says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Christ will come in glory and He'll raise up that pile of dust of those who have fallen asleep and He will transform it into the likeness of His own resurrection glory. And we who are alive will not see death, but our bodies will be transformed into the likeness of His glory. We will gain His glory on that day. And what a focus we should have. And I love one of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 4, where he says that, You know, now my outer man is decaying, but my inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for me an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And that's where his focus was. And even though his outer man had no glory, is decaying apart, is falling apart, it As we grow older, we experience that more and more, but it will continue to decay. But the inner man is being renewed because his focus is on gaining the glory of Jesus Christ. If we do not reflect often upon this blessed hope that we have, then we're robbing our souls of many spiritual blessings and benefits. If we anchor our lives too much into this world and this life, then we will not fulfill fully our calling as children of God. We'll become too spiritually grounded when we should be soaring in the heavenlies. When we lose sight of the celestial city ahead of us and we find ourselves in the dungeons of Doubting Castle under the whip of giant despair and we find our souls just pulled down and weighed down And yet we have this incredible hope of the coming of Christ. And on that day, we will gain His glory. And that has renewing a purifying effect upon our souls if we will but meditate and reflect upon it. That's one of the major themes in 1 and 2 Thessalonians that the Apostle Paul wrote to these dear brethren These believers that had many questions and many struggles in these areas, but he's writing his letters to build them up in the faith and to encourage them. It's Christ's cross that gives us that hope of glory. As we read earlier in Titus, that he has redeemed us by his blood so that we might have that blessed hope. And I think now it's fitting that at the end of this uh, study this morning that we can turn our attention to the cross of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, because this is what took away our sin. This is what earned the grace and the glory that is going to be given to us in the future. It's what Christ did for us on the cross. And now we can turn our thoughts to Him 
and reflect upon His suffering, His substitution. He was dying in our place. He satisfied the full justice and the wrath of God that we might be forever forgiven. As we break the bread, we are reminded of Christ's bodily torment and the pain and the agony that He endured for us on the cross. And this is the Lord's Supper. It's for all who know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, then we would ask you to let the elements pass you by and just reflect upon your standing before a holy God. That you're a sinner. That you deserve God's judgment. And you will stand before the judge on that day if you do not repent and believe in Christ, the only Savior, the only One who can forgive you. So turn from your sin. And in faith and trust, put your confidence in Christ. Ask Him to save you. Call upon His name so that you can have the hope of gaining the glory of God because your sins are forgiven and you have His righteousness as robes around you. For the rest of us who, by God's grace, have placed our faith in Christ, it's a time to remember the Lord and reflect upon His love and His suffering for us. So let's uh, bow our heads and give thanks for the bread and the ushers will come forward. Father, again, we, we thank You, Lord, that we can look back and remember what You accomplished for us on the cross of Christ. All that You suffered, all that You endured in bearing our sins and taking away the wrath of God and the curse that we deserve. It should fall upon us. But in love, You took our place. And You took that blow. And Lord, we love You and thank You for that. Father, the future hope that we have is because of the cross of Christ. And as we remember Your death and resurrection, we also look forward to Your coming again. And thank You that even now You are on Your throne in heaven as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So we want to thank You and praise You today in Jesus' name. Amen. The ushers would please uh, come forward and we will pass the bread.